Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. In addition, you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. As well, I have two new podcasts out there. The first is From John to Justin, which looks at every single Prime Minister from Sir John A. Macdonald all the way to Justin Trudeau. I released my first episode on Friday last week, about, of course, Sir John A. Macdonald, and I'm going to be doing one every single Friday until we're done. You can subscribe on all podcast platforms. As well, I have Pucks and Cups, which looks at the early history of hockey in Canada from about the 1800s all the way up to the 1960s. It releases every Sunday, and just a few days ago I released my first episode all about Phantom Joe Malone. So why not check it out on all podcast platforms? Today I'm speaking with Jean Barnum of the University of British Columbia. She wrote a series of essays about the Indigenous in British Columbia through the history of the province, and they've been compiled into a book called The Cusp of Contact. It's a fantastic book, it's really interesting, and it really tells a great story about the Indigenous and what they went through as British Columbia was forming, and its cities, Victoria and Vancouver, were starting to become more prominent. So let's just get straight to that interview. So it's a series of, it's a series of essays that you've uh, oh, written... It, it- it really isn't a series of essays. Okay. These are articles I wrote at different points in time, mm-hmm. and they're each complete in themselves. And sometimes I wrote them because groups in particular parts of British Columbia wanted their story told. I wrote them for a number of reasons. And they came together and were compiled by Marjorie Fee, who's a very distinguished scholar in the Department of English at UBC. But she didn't, t- she didn't do it. She didn't tell me. She only came to me when they were all together and said, look, I've done this because I knew if I asked you, you would say you can't do it. And so it's all done. And so it was uh, the order of the essays, et cetera. They come from her. They come from her thinking. I don't disagree with it, mm-hmm. but it's a different product than if I had. Uh, and she needs to be she needs to be recognized for this because she obviously, you know, you look at how big this thing is. She worked very hard putting it together. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So in any case, that's all just to correct that. Sure. Uh, so I guess that kind of answers the first question of what prompted compiling all of these into, into a book. And like I said, it's a really good book. She, yeah. Well, she talks about in the beginning of the book, she talks about what she did and she mm-hmm. talks about um, <clears throat> she went, she went to the library and she looked for articles I'd written at different times for her teaching. Cause she teaches in the English department in a sort of similar kind of area. Mm-hmm. And she would discover that often the pages were beaten or the pages were missing because people had uh, students or someone had come and they couldn't find, you know, they couldn't find the essay or the pages were et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's when she decided she would put them together, but not, um, not ask me. And I didn't know her, <laughs> I knew her hardly at all. So, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> when we look at uh, the indigenous across Canada in general, a lot of their history has been ignored. Uh, the indigenous of BC, do you feel it because it, it's, it was a kind of a later, uh, it took longer for kind of civilization to spread across, kind of like with the prairies, is the indigenous of BC, is that history ignored more than, say, other parts of Canada, especially eastern uh, Canada? Yeah, you asked me that question when you, uh, 
emailed me the questions and I've thought about it since, and I'm not quite sure. I think that looking at indigenous people, we've wanted to look for dramatic spots, you know, for a few fights, somebody fought, someone tried to get land and someone didn't. And a lot of those things had already happened in other parts of Canada. When, if you're looking at the history, when, you know, when BC came into being, which is not very long ago. Mm-hmm. And I, the kinds of events happened in British Columbia, but they've happened within a shorter period of time. And for the most part, they haven't been as dramatic. There've been writers who wanted to make it dramatic. Um, but if you look at what happened, uh, British Columbia essentially came into being when gold was discovered in British Columbia, which is now uh, you know, less than 150 years ago. It's a very short period of time. Uh, and it was, then it was an indigenous place much longer and large parts of British Columbia have continued to be largely indigenous places that haven't been uh, trampled on by uh, you know, hordes, of, uh, hordes of white folk coming there. So I think, I think it's, a, it's, a quite a, it's a different setting than where you have um, you know, a long period of time as you do. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm, I'm from Alberta originally, but I actually grew up in the Okanagan. Okay, so you know, so you understand what I'm saying, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of the relatively short time period. And with um, Indigenous people continuing to know who they are, they remember who they came from, they'll talk, they can talk about, <coughs> in terms of grandparents and parents, of a way of life that was and has been um, forced not to exist for various reasons. But I think it's different than the... Uh, and what happened, what happened in Eastern Canada, because that's, you know, much longer time period. Absolutely. Uh, one, uh, in the first uh, piece in the book, one really interesting thing that I read was, uh, when we think of the reserves, we think, you know, the, the Indigenous were pushed to reserves and told, well, you know, have your way of life there. But then in the, in the first piece, it's really interesting because you have the reserves outside of Victoria and Vancouver, and they the, you know, the, the white folk and everything, the, the settlers want these reserves and they say, well, you're not using the reserves the way that we want you to use the reserves. So we want to take the reserves away from you. So is, is stuff like that, like, cause I, I didn't really realize that. Is that the taking of reserves something that we don't really look at enough uh, today in Canadian history? Is it glossed over in a way? Absolutely. And if you look uh, just in the last week in the newspaper, there was not, read the day, I read the, uh, Vancouver Sun and the Globe and Mail, and uh, there was an article about uh, a whole group of people in British Columbia who are saying, yes, this is precisely what's happened. It couldn't have happened. We're going to get it back. We want it absolutely, you know, marked out, and we want to know what the process was. I think one of the reasons that we don't know about it, and this group is now saying, yes, we want to do something about it, is that the time period is fairly short. Uh, British Columbia became a province of Canada in 1871 and how long ago is that that's sort of you know that's not very long 1871 100 years it's 1971 then 40 you know another 40 years and you get to ourselves it's Mm -hmm. been it's been a more it's been a more recent occurrence and i think that the uh consequence is that a lot of what has happened is only being realized at the present time um and it's not been at the same time not as long a time period of absolute um exploitation as it was certainly in other parts of Canada, which have a longer, a longer period. I mean, Alberta is very similar, similar to British Columbia, I think, and the time periods are fairly recent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So people remember, they still, you know, you remember 
your grandfather. You remember what you're told about your great grandfather. You know, you can go back to you can go back to uh, certain quotation marks, the beginnings of time, mm-hmm. which you can't do in a lot of other places. I think that's one of the reasons why, in terms of with this book, and why it was possible to do it, and what was a lot of this is built based on people talking to me, and you read the stories in the book, and these are people who talked to me. Well, I taught at UBC, so sometimes there were students who talked to me, were talking about their own families, and uh, what happened to my family because I was teaching courses in this area, so they wanted to know what was happened. And in other cases, I mean, there are you know there are long memories in terms of oral, in terms of oral history and oral tradition. And so you can, you know, families, and that's why, I mean, people, those stories are only told in the book because either they're in the public record or because descendants and others wanted them told. Mm-hmm. I would ask someone for information and they'd immediately send me somewhere and, you know, give, you know, give me all the information that they had. <laughs> they're uh, not ashamed of their history. They're proud mm-hmm. of their history is a way of saying what I, want, what I said. Yeah. Uh, when we look at uh, indigenous history and culture, there's kind of a misconception of the women were always subservient to the men, uh, kind of putting that European mentality yeah. on it. Uh, so how, how did the indigenous women, how did they kind of make the concrete decisions to kind of show their power and show their agency within their, their, their tribes mm-hmm. and nations within uh, British Columbia? There's an article in that book which is actually does this really nicely talking about the early time periods when you had the, uh, you know, the early ships captains come, you know, all these heroic stories. And it was the indigenous women who would go on the ship and they were the ones who were doing the trading because they were trading for, you know, they're trading foodstuffs, et cetera, for goods that they could take back home. And so too, I mean, I think indigenous women were, if you look at the early stories, were very, very important in terms of you know, surviving an economy that survived in the course of the everyday. They weren't, uh, they weren't subservient. And the other thing that happened in British Columbia, of course, which was unique, I think, in Canada, is that the first wave of, the first there was a, there was a, there was a fur trade. You know, everybody's got to start with a fur trade, right? You're from the prairies, <laughs> you know that. But yeah. uh, that very quickly in 1858 was, um, totally taken over by a gold rush and the gold rush had thousands of men came and they were almost all white and they were almost all there on their own and they were going to get rich and be on their way and a lot of them then stayed and that's part of um you know what when you when you look at this story why it happened the way that it did was that women played prominent roles in the gold rush both in terms of um having goods, they were the ones who were selling goods, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And also because these were all men without women and they wanted women mm-hmm. and indigenous women did. And a lot of these, some of these relationships were fairly transient, fairly quick, but a lot of, they became the life, they became the, uh, you know, they became the ways of life for a whole lot of men. I've traced mm-hmm. something like a thousand, you know, you can trace these relationships. They're, they're all over the place because mm-hmm. that was, we all live within our options, right? What the options we have at the particular point in time. And so a lot of, and I didn't realize when I wrote some of these articles as much as I do later, how many of these relationships um, have gold rush, have gold rush origins. Absolutely. Uh, right now we're kind of really, the, the government and Canadian society is kind of trying to focus on the truth and reconciliation, uh, you know, working with the indigenous. Uh, what, so looking back at the things that you mentioned in the book, like, how you know the reserves were taken because vancouver and victoria were like wow that's great land there and we want the land and you're not using the land the way we want you to use it so what can we 
Yeah. What can we look at uh, the past? Like what lessons can we learn from the mistakes that we've made in the past when in dealing with uh, indigenous people? Well, I think, I think um, indigenous people, the we is the we who just, <coughs> I hear we is the white we. There's also the indigenous we. And I think the indigenous we is very strongly aware of what has happened, what the history is and what one can do in terms of reconciliation. As we look at reconciliation, uh, part of it, which managed to go through the residential school project. Uh, there's residential school stuff in there, but you haven't read that far in the book. However, <laughs> you know, you uh, don't have to. I, I, had, I had to go back to it because I knew it was going to talk to you. And I thought, my God, did, did, she, did you put all that stuff in there? Oh, my God, I can't read it all. I, read it all. I, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it all. I don't know what... I, you're not supposed to say this because you're right. I don't know why anybody would buy that book and think that you're it, to be honest. <laughs> However, <laughs> there is school stuff. The school stuff, uh, Marjorie, for some reason, put it at the end of the book, which is fine. But uh, <laughs> I think the principal issue which um, got Indigenous people engaged um, were the whole issues of residential schools. Because I mean, every family, you know, virtually every family that I know, and I, I know, you know, I know a lot of people has been contaminated or contaminated is not the right word, but they've been affected by somebody in their family, a, a father, a grandmother, someone who's gone to residential school and come back with story with stories about it. So I think, and that's part of what has driven, you know, we talk about driven reconciliation and reconciliation in part is, as you know, getting acknowledgement of, um, the residential school phenomenon. And there are, and I think it's in that book, I can't, I'm not sure, but there were indigenous children who are trying, their parents were trying very hard to get them into the regular schools. And a whole number of, you know, families did get their children into the regular schools with white children. But then they were, you know, they were screwed because white racism is also part of this story. Mm-hmm. And so they had no choice. You know, you can have a residential school, you can have no school at all. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, they, I think part of it, the first, the first, I don't mean to sort of talk too much, but the first thing I think people have to keep in mind, and it's sometimes so easy to forget it, is that indigenous people, 50 years ago, 100 to 150 years, they were just as clever as we were. And they were, but the ways in which they could strategize was limited by some things that whites were doing. A lot of whites came from place, you have the gold rush, you have the whites coming with the gold rush. Some of them, you know, partnered with indigenous women, had families were very, Successful others were, you know, came from places that were totally white places, upper class England or what have you. And they just couldn't understand that you could have indigenous people who actually spoke. You know, they might speak the same like, my God, they're speaking just like us. How can this be? <laughs> and so there were, you know, there are a lot of complexities in terms of what happened with um, indigenous people, particularly the areas in which the uh, which whites came, which was initially the fur trade, which was not so bad because that was a that was a group where um, in order for the fur trade to flourish, the whites who came had to depend on indigenous people to bring them animal pelts, right? <coughs> so it was a, it was it was a we win, you win, we win, we all win uh, situation. But with the gold rush, it was men thinking they were coming, they were going back home very quickly. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> um, and so they they treated. British Columbia in a whole variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. And so um, in part, and I think that's the part of the story, which is 
you know, considerable extent left out as to why do people feel the way they do? Why have they been led to believe the way they do? And why are people, um, why have white people screwed so many Indian people? Mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of a tough question to answer because it's got far reaching ramifications, but what are some of the most significant ramifications that we're seeing that you talk about in, in the, uh, in the, in the various articles in the book, what are some of the ramifications we're still feeling today uh, from the decisions that were made uh, so many years ago? Um, well, one of the ones which I had never expected, it comes from the articles I've written um, and long before they were in this book, they were articles. Um, is that it is indigenous people being willing and wanting to discover their own histories, their own stories of their families. And I have dealt, I have had, I mean, the internet has played a real role in this and, and possibly through email played a role but over the years. I have sent material that I have put together on families to you know, just a large number of people who've written me an email and said, I know that my, I know that my great grandfather married, you know, uh, married an Indian woman, but I know nothing more about it. What can I do? And the same way you've got people who are from families which are basically indigenous saying, I know that there was a white grandfather, great grandfather, how can I find out? And I've played a role in that in the sense that I've got data on a lot of these families. But it's also, I think what it says, it says that now people are willing, they're, they're willing to search out their whole histories. And their whole histories are much more satisfying than the half histories that have been allowed to a lot of people. I mean, the number, I've had a large number of people say, I just discovered I have an Indian great-grandmother. What am I going to do? What should I do? Um, you know, be proud, be happy, go find her. Um, but uh, I think that kind of is a sort of another version of reconciliation. I mean, the residential school reconciliation has been very important, but there's also a kind of reconcil a racial reconciliation which is going on in uh, more and more within families who elderly or white, elderly might be Chinese, elderly might be black, elderly um, might be indigenous. And they're uh, Hawaiians. I talked in there about a lot of, in toward the back of the book, there's a chapter on Hawaii. Hawaiians, people came from Hawaii, Hawaii as workers, men, and they married indigenous women. Um, but uh, I think that kind of reconciliation, I think is happening, but it's not happening with headlines in the newspapers, but it's certainly very, very visible. <laughs> Uh, so when we, we, we look at like the, the indigenous uh, culture was literally paved over uh, by the expansion of cities, things like that, like again, we see in Vancouver, Victoria. Uh, is the erasure of the indigenous memories because so much of it was oral history? Is that something we can fix today? Is that something we can, you know, discover again uh, after so like a century of more or less not even focusing on it? That's what, yeah, and that's what I was talking about just now. I think that it is happening. It's happening uh, in very exciting, in very exciting kinds of ways. I had, um, of when I was teaching at UBC, I had a student who I was doing some little bit of, had a little bit of indigenous stuff in it. She kept me after class and said, you know, I think I've got an indigenous, I think she was an Indian because nobody will talk about it. She was an Indian. She lived in uh, the Okanagan about 100, 150 years ago, what can I do? And the manuscript census goes back to 18, uh, goes back to 1850. I said, look, I'll check and see what I can find. And lo and behold, I found her indigenous, you know, the 
the name of the man and then the name of the woman. And you can tell pretty much when they talk about, he should put down where you are, where you're from. She was born in British Columbia before there would have been white, you know, white, white women likely in British Columbia, et cetera. And uh, gave it to her. She was very excited because there are pieces of history that are out there. So I'm saying, and the census is now all available in uh, <clears throat> Library and Archives Canada on their website. The census is all there and you can put, put in a name and they will tell you whether They'll, tell, they'll give you all the entries which come under that name. So people, you can, we can refine, a lot of that history can be refound. There are also church records. There are um, newspaper records or newspaper accounts. Um, and one of the good things is particularly for families like this who are, um, have a white grandfather or a white father or a white great-grandfather is that you, know, you, can, you can search the newspapers and you'll find the name of the uh, white person and it'll, it'll give you the trail going back, you know, going if you want. I think more and more families, certainly I hear about more and more families who are doing this. I, I just got a phone call this morning from um, someone who's involved in a school in uh, uh, beyond the Okanagan on the other side of the Okanagan. I'm not quite sure where, she didn't tell me. And they want to name the school after someone who's of uh, part indigenous descent that I've written about. And it's because They've read, you know, they've read the book that I did. They want to name it after that. They want to read, schools never had a name. It's had a name like, you know, uh, Big Play School or something like that. They want to rename it. So I think these kinds of things are happening. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot doubt. And it, sometimes we play on white guilt. There's nothing wrong with playing on white guilt. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. That's know, true. It's a good sales point. And I had, you know, I just, I just had a half hour conversation with her on the phone because I had, I said, I'd written about this woman. So I knew mm -hmm. about it. And so I said, yeah, well, I help. You could use anything I've written. But, you know, I think that sort of, and it's not just white guilt. It's just what we didn't know, you know, what we don't know, we can't really deny. And it's a lot of this that we just don't know. And I think the other thing about British Columbia, and that's where I think this book plays a role. Um, I say all this with newness because I hadn't looked at it for a year or so until, you know, you want to do the interviews. I think, my God, what's in it? Um, <laughs> But uh, I think one thing that is, is a lot of it is just stuff we didn't know about. It's not, it's not that we're hiding stuff anymore because we're less willing to hide stuff, but it's just that we don't know about it because we can't know about everything. And that's why this, this book, I think, um, thanks to Marjorie Fee, not to me, uh, this book has, is, makes a lot of that history accessible. And I think the way that Marjorie put those Vancouver and Victoria stories first is really nifty. You know, mm -hmm. she starts out with it you looked at and I think you know we forget about I I didn't know about all of, I didn't know about Victoria until I started writing about you know said I know about Vancouver and I wrote an article about that like well, I got to find Victoria and you start looking at what happened to Victoria and oh my god and it turned out that one of the um, uh, prominent indigenous men who played a role in maintaining uh, a place for indigenous people I actually knew her descent I knew a descendant of his. Of his. Oh. <laughs> so I didn't know I knew because I was in a provincial board and she was on the provincial board. Mm -hmm. And so, the, you know, if links are, they're, they're, these links are around a lot uh, mm -hmm. in terms of trying, if we want to recover the past, you know, we can recover the past. I say as a historian, because that's what we're supposed to do. And if we can't do it, then we don't have a job. Right? <laughs> True but, you know, we can recover. You know, we mm -hmm. can recover a lot of the past. And now the... Uh, through online sources, through uh, changes in attitudes and perspectives, you know, it's much more possible to do it if we choose to do it. Mm -hmm. And people starting with their own family, 
you know, it's one of the ways that we have, we have a vested interest in our own family. Um, I guess the last question, when we look at the indigenous, uh, they have their culture more or less ripped from them. Uh, they have their lands taken, paved well, over. Don't, don't be excessive because I think a large parts of cultures have survived. That's kind of what I, yeah, I'm, 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 get, I'm getting to is that well, they, they, they deal with the residential schools. They deal with a century of being told to be more like Europeans, but they still hold on yeah. to their culture. They, uh, they still celebrate their culture. So what can we learn from the indigenous who, who have held on to their culture through immense adversity over the course of 150 years in Western Canada? I think what you just said, I think that's the most important lesson that Canadians need to learn. And if you're, are you, you're a, are you a journalist? I used to be. Well, I guess I'd say it's something that should be written about. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that the pieces that, uh, I suppose in a sense, I've written about some of it on the side, but not in a, not in a upfront area, is that people have, these stories still survive if we pay attention to them, but it's taken. But I think that the current um, people, uh, are suddenly turning around and saying, okay, let's look at what we have. Let's go on, let's push it a bit further. And I think that's both white people, like the woman who phoned me this morning about the mm -hmm. renaming the school. But I think it's also certainly a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of, I have had a lot of indigenous students and I've supervised a lot of indigenous graduate students to graduate degrees. Um, and these are people who are working very hard to, uh, you know, to people are working to make a difference. We each have only partial history. We only know a little bit about our, you know, where we came from. And I think mm -hmm. people want to know, you know, people want to know more and they want to know more sort of in good ways as opposed to, uh, I'll whack you in the head. I mean, there certainly is cases where um, incredible things have happened, incredible things have ha wrongs have happened, which can be righted in terms of land claims, in terms of all of this. There's endless spaces to go for people to be, um, you know, they're always looking for expert witnesses. Can you be an expert witness and tell us that we lost our land? I mean, I think there are people who are working very hard in these directions to right some of the wrongs, but I think it's more uh, at a level of understanding. And I think whites, whites, are feel, whites are feeling more guilty and that's really a good deal. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not saying go away and uh, go away. We don't want to know about this. But mm -hmm. I think, that, you know, I've always been an optimist and I think the world becomes a better place. I think British Columbia has got a real advantage in this way because it still has got, um, it's still sort of cut off from the rest of the world and it's mm -hmm. cut off from the rest of Canada, you know, and there is even Alberta. I have, my brother lives in Alberta, so I know all about, you know, um, he's over on the other side of some kind of divide, you mm -hmm. know, but I think that we've got an ocean and that's one way, that one, it's one thing that protects us. We've got the Americans and we want less and less to do with them. And then we go, we gotta go way far up and we'll get to Alaska. And we don't have much to do with that either. And then we have the Rocky Mountains on the other side. So I think we've got a lot of protective, uh, a protective gear that we forget about in British Columbia. It can be, uh, make us look, spend some time looking at ourselves as opposed to looking, uh, you know, looking outward. Mm -hmm. What do you think about now? Do you think about Alberta? Do you think about British Columbia? Uh, in terms of what? Well, just who you are oh. and how you identify. What you I would say I, I would I, say I identify more British Columbian. I've spent a lot of my life in Alberta, but yeah. I feel I, I've more British Columbian in sensibilities and things like that, uh, and things yeah. that I believe. So yeah, it definitely leaves I, a mark on you. And I think it does. I think British Columbia has got that. Yeah. 
you know, that distinct, I remember being in the UBC library one day and there's a, they don't like outside people coming in with a couple who clearly were outside people. And uh, they came in the place, they got the line in the library and the library desk ahead of me. And they said, oh, we want to, we want to know about ourselves. We, we, we think, we think our grandfather once lived in British Columbia. Can you help us find him? You know, and I think that there is a sense, and this always stuck with me because it was some, stuck with me because it was someone who actually wanted to know. And how do you how do you go about knowing? And how do you go about finding things out? And certainly, we can do it much more. I mean, if it was today, I would have told them to go online. You know, mm -hmm. don't, don't stand on this line. Go on that line online. Um, <laughs> but I think the ways in which we can find out about ourselves have really just you know, that's talking about being able to, you know, going to the Library and Archives Canada website and finding out about anybody who you, anybody who related to is in the census. You just put down what you think a name is and they find anyone like they'll tell you and you can search it down. You'll know exactly who they are. I mean, all of these kinds of things have made it much more possible <coughs> for us to uh, be comfortable with ourselves, And that's part of it. If we're comfortable with ourselves, then we're more likely to be comfortable with, you know, people who might be indigenous or around us because we don't have to be protected. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gene Barnum, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you want to reach me, you can. Just go to craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. In addition, you can support the podcast like I said. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.